Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 80? This is a prayer for the king. As Israel was under distress, particularly Judah is under distress, as we've been seeing in the previous Psalms, this is a prayer for the king to be strong. And as we consider what this prayer finds its fulfillment in is in Christ. This is a prayer for the future king. As we'll see as we read the psalm, and I want you to pay attention to the motifs that will be fulfilled in Christ as I read it. Beginning in verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them their tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. And it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that you planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. We will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You'll notice a repetition in verse 19. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You, you see a repetition of that phrase three times. In verses 1 through 3. The third verse actually starts with that phrase. And then from verses 4 through 7, verse 7 is that phrase. Then verses 8 through 14. And at 14, you don't find the exact phrase, but you find what some, com some commentators refer to as its cousins. 
as its cousin. And, and then it's seen this in turn again, O God of hosts, and that idea of let your face shine upon us. And then verses 14 through 19. In verse 19, you see the repeat of that same request that God would shine his face upon them. So those little phrases actually form the units of thought in the psalm. And so as you read this psalm, take note of those repeated phrases because it's, it's making a connection for us to see in the text and see those complete thoughts. And these first three verses really contains the idea of God saving us as, as our shepherd. It begins by saying, if you think of this as a prayer or as this as a, as a worship song, notice how God is addressed in this. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. O shepherd of Israel actually connects us and shows the connection to the distress that they were facing in the previous Psalms. In Psalm 79, where they were asking, how long, O God, how long are we going to be like this? You'll notice that it closes verse 13 in Psalm 79 with, But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation we will recount your praise. And if you don't, if you don't take a breath and you just go straight into to Psalm 80, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You see the connection. In Psalm 78, that lengthy psalm, you see that same theme. We see in verse 71, from following the, the nursing ewes, he brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. And if you back up to Psalm 77 in verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So the distress we've seen in the Psalms, in the previous three Psalms, where Jerusalem is being destroyed, they're under attack, it possibly could be what, what leads to their exile. Each time we see that there's this connection of at the end where they're confessing that God is their great shepherd, they're, they're pleading with their God to rescue them as a shepherd, to lead them out of, out of danger. And so this Psalm just picks right up with that same distress that they were facing by calling out to their shepherd of Israel. They've experienced desolation. They've experienced the frightening horrors of war and nations more powerful than them come to destroy them. And so they look to their great shepherd. That's how they begin this prayer. They say, you who led Joseph like a flock... It's very interesting that what we recognize in this is, you'll hear this as a prayer for a king. And this idea of you will lead your people like Joseph, like a flock. You think about how God led his people out of the exodus. How God led his people by his future king. And how God will lead his future people through a second exodus in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, every aspect of this is pointing us to what Jesus will do. That Jesus is our great shepherd that will lead us out of the wilderness of our sin. He says this in addressing God, You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. If you look at verse 1 and, and consider this as a prayer, which I think is proper for us to do, you'll notice the adoration that is here. 
When it says the throne above the cherubim, that's obviously a reference to the Ark of the Covenant because it rests upon the cherubim and the idea of God's throne resting upon the cherubim. But it's a picture of the divine majesty of God. It's a picture of God's sovereignty and of his power. And the psalmist is appealing to God in this. And he asks God to shine forth, which is, again, reminiscent of the, the Exodus period of time. In Deuteronomy, in 33, in verse 2, Moses actually prays for this very thing. Where he says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sire upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. You notice how he says that God shines forth upon his people in rescuing him. So when it's asking, the psalmist is asking, Lord, will you shine forth upon us? This is an asking of God that God would rescue them. That God would deliver them. Now again, I want us to notice how the prayer opens. It opens with these attributes of God, of His majesty, of His sovereignty, of His power. But there's also this personal aspect of it. And if you look at, this, if you look at the verse and had to notice what that personal aspect is, what would it be? It's that God is the shepherd. That God is the one that leads his people. And the shepherd knows his sheep and cares for his sheep and guides his sheep. He makes sure his sheep are well fed. You can almost think of this as Jesus teaching the disciples to pray, saying, you, you say, our Father who art in heaven. Because we can call God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We can call God our our Father, our Shepherd, the one who cares for us, that watches over us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at this, let's not let us just pass this by, but this is an appeal to God's fatherly love over his people. He goes on in verse 2, saying, Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come and save us. This is virtually saying the same thing as shine forth. Shine forth is, will you have victory over our enemies? Will you deliver us? When we read this phrase before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, when you, when you go back into the book of Numbers particularly, and you see that wilderness generation that is going to go out into battle, oftentimes those three tribes are grouped together as leading. And so this is a picture of, once again, will, will, will you conquer for us? Conquer through these tribes as you have conquered in the past. So this is an appeal to God, what God has done in the past. Will you do this again? Stir up your might and come to save us, just as you did through Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin. He goes on to close this section of salvation. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. I hope that I hope that sounds familiar to you. Let your face shine. That should be a familiar phrase to us in Numbers chapter 6. One of the duties of the priest was to bless the people. And in Numbers 6 
in verse 24, we read what's called the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's what the priest was to pray over the people, asking the Lord to bless the people, to ask the Lord, will you shine your face upon us? Obviously, in contrast to don't look down upon us in anger, but rather will you shine your face upon us, almost as if it's asking for the Lord's smile upon the people. Why this particular blessing does the psalmist ask? It comes back to what he's been asking through this whole thing. It's asking for restoration of how we once were. That's what this restoration is about. Israel is desolate. The temple is being attacked. It's been desecrated. The people are in turmoil. They no longer receive the blessings materially nor spiritually because they have shunned God. And so what the prayer is, is, Lord, will you restore us to what we once knew? Where we once had abundance of fruit, we have an abundance of food, we had children, we had all of these things. Lord, will you restore us to that? And if the Lord will shine his face, he says that we may be saved. And the ESV says that we may be saved. The, the uh, NSAB is much clearer. We will be saved. If you will shine your face upon us once again and restore us, we will be saved from all of our enemies. This is a complete admission that we can do nothing apart from you. We are desperate. We are beaten. And we cannot work our way out of this. But Lord, if you will shine your face upon us, if you will show us grace, if you will be gracious to us, we will be saved. And as the psalmist asks for this, then the psalmist goes into an acknowledgement that they're under sovereign discipline. And it's the sovereign discipline that leads the psalmist to repentance. In verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Previously, the psalmist had asked this, How long, O Lord, will you be, will you be angry forever? They were facing the disciplining hand of God. But then here he says, oh, oh, Lord, God of hosts. And when you see that phrase, Lord, God of hosts, that's speaking of God's sovereignty over all things. Then he says this, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? And there's a couple things we have to note about that. It's an acknowledgement that the people are praying to God. And at the same time, the text says that God's angry with them praying. Isn't it surprising to hear that? For the Lord wants us to pray to him. The Lord wants us to lift up our voices. The Lord says, if you seek me, I will find you. But it says here, as they pray, that he's angry with. And a literal translation of that angry with is smoke against. 
which is probably an allusion to the incense that was burned in the temple. So as they go to the holy place to lift up their voices to the Lord, his smoke is fighting or going to battle against their voices so that they may not be heard. That should be shocking to us. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You know, we, we think God owes us something. We think that whenever I go down and pray to the Lord, He has to act according to what I'm asking at that moment. We think that God owes us something, and God owes us nothing. And the simple reality is, is you can read through the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, and see that we can hinder our prayers. It's not that the Lord doesn't hear our prayers, it doesn't know that our, what our needs are, but we can certainly hinder our prayers. Can I just remain in unrepentant, active sin, and then go to the Lord and say, hey, can you help me out with this other thing? But no, I'm going to continue to ignore your word in all areas of my life, and we expect God to just jump for us because he delights in our prayers. Does he delight in the prayer of the person apart from faith? Does he delight in the prayers of his people when they actively snub him? If you're curious to the answer, Peter says this, and we've, I know you're familiar with this passage. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So in other words, there's this relational aspect that we can have where we're at odds here with our wife and our prayers hindered for that because we were sinful. And that can be switched around, right? Peter's just simply making the point. So when we read this passage here, when we're shocked by it, why are you angry with our prayers? Why is the smoke of your incense going to battle against our prayers? Rather than being surprised by that, we should be surprised that God isn't angry with all of our prayers and that He accepts them by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what should be more surprising to us. But I do think we should meditate upon this. I do think we should let the weight of this verse hit us. We, we see that, the, that God can be called our friend. The Lord Jesus is our brother. God is our Father. But, but we don't treat God as we treat any other friend. It goes on to say this, not only are you angry with our prayers, but verse 5, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. It's hard to imagine a more desperate sounding verse than that. A poetic way of showing you have leveled your people to complete desperation. They've cried so much that they cannot cry any more. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laughing among themselves. In other words, 
those that were supposed to see your glory through your people, they laugh at us. And our enemies have triumphed over us. The very promises that God gave his people that if you will obey me, your enemies will run from you. That's not the case, but now Israel's the weakened neighbor. And I want you to notice this. It's God himself who orchestrates this. Look at verse 5. You have fed them. In verse 6, you make us an object. The reality is, is this, is that they're admitting their sin by that. Lord, you brought this upon us. Lord, you're angry at us and hearing our prayers because we've been sinful. That's an admission. The psalmist knows that. In fact, this is the means of repentance. Calvin says this is to encourage and stir themselves up to repentance. They ascribed all this to the judgment of God in whose power it is to bend the hearts of men. When you find yourself under the disciplining hand of God, does it bend your heart to cry out and say, Lord, you have brought these things upon me. Lord, you have brought these things, but you have brought them for my good that I might repent. The psalmist closes this out in verse 7 with the blessing of Aaron. Again, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The same repeat of restore us to the way things were. Save us. And if your face shines upon us, we will be saved. He goes on to then recount the history of, of Israel. To remind God the special nature that Israel is to God. Verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. And so Israel here is described as a vine of God. You cleared the ground for it. And if you've ever farmed, you know that you have to clear rocks out of the soil. And when you, before... You plant, you clear all the rocks out of the soil. And farmers say that they have to clear the rocks out of the soil every year. The rocks just keep seeming to come up every time they plant. They, they never leave even when they pull them out. There's new rocks there the next year. But what, what it says of this is that God takes out so that they could plant this vine in the choice soil. And notice what it says of the, of the vine. It took deep root and filled the land because it was a healthy vine. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. And so you, you see the picture of the mountains. It's ridiculous to think that a vine could cover a mountain or a cedar tree, but yet that's how healthy and fruitful this vine was, that it covered the mountains, and it, and it provided shade for the mountains, and it was actually over the cedars. It, it, it's this picture of health and blessing. What do we see is that God is the vine dresser, and Israel is the vine. And they grew, and they spread the glory of God throughout the land, just as they were called to do. However, Israel was fruitless. 
Israel was disobedient. In fact, the recounting of this history demonstrates that the psalmist actually knows that. And it begins to answer the question of why the Lord is angry. Verse 11, It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along may pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. In other words, why this vine that you planted, you cleared the soil, it was fruitful. God, why have you broken it down? We find the answer to this elsewhere. In Isaiah chapter 5, in verse 1 and 3, 1 through 3, excuse me. We read a similar, similar story. Verse 1, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, God planted this wonderful vine in the most fertile soil possible and made every means possible for this vine to be fruitful and to spread and to produce wonderful grapes that would produce wine and it produces wild, sour grapes. Jeremiah, in chapter 2, gives us another angle of the same picture. In verse 21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. This is another angle. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? See, Israel is declared in the Old Testament in many places to be a vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. And this vine that's planted in the most fertile soil and given every opportunity to blossom and grow and produce fruit fails every single time. And God uses the imagery of the vine for Israel to make the point, and as an illustration, how Israel fails every single time to represent God. We have to hear that language, not only in Psalm 80, in Jeremiah, and in Isaiah, to understand these words. Jesus says, I am the true vine. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of me, of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, 
and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we understand Jesus' words when talking about a vine that could be removed? He's speaking to Israel. That Israel was that vine that did not bear fruit. And so when Christ says He is the true vine, and that if you're attached to Him, what will you do? You will bear fruit. Israel itself forsook the covenant. And that's the whole point of calling Israel a vine, is that Israel itself was in covenant with God, a conditional covenant, which required obedience. And if they were not obedient, then they broke the covenant, and thus they are removed as a vine. It was a conditional covenant. But Jesus, as the true vine, is the one who produces fruit. This is not speaking of when he says, Abide in me and I in you, and every fruit that doesn't, or every branch that doesn't bear fruit will be kicked out, is not speaking of being kicked out of the covenant. He's speaking of Israel that cannot maintain it on their own. And Jesus uses this imagery to show that he is the vine that produces fruit. The psalmist goes back and says the ironic blessing again, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. This is a, a restatement in just different words of let your, let your face shine upon us and save us. And notice what they pray. Have regard for this vine. Think about what we said already. The fulfillment of the vine is in Christ. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. This is speaking of a Davidic king, but we have to note the language is so clear here is that Israel itself was called the firstborn son. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, we read these words, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel itself, as the vine, Israel as the firstborn, is a type that's pointing to Christ. And so when we read of the vine, it's finding its fulfillments in Christ. When we read of the Son, who you made strong for yourself, it's, it's speaking and pointing forward to Christ. The image of power and the right hand speak of a king. It's speaking of that future Davidic king. Remember, this is a prayer for the king. He goes on to say in verse 16, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, calling for the Lord to have judgment on those that would attack the vine. But then verse 17, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for your 
self. How do we understand that? Let me read Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus applies that to himself. So when we read these words, let your right hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself, it is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verse 18. It's wonderful, and I hope puts everything together for us. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. In other words, when you have fulfilled these prayers in this future king, we will not turn back from you. That's an interesting statement because they're under punishment because they had turned back from God. But they say, when you have fulfilled this, notice what it says, we shall not turn back. Why is that? Because that everyone that is in Christ and abides in Christ will produce fruit and will not turn back. They can't turn back. This is all connected to those that are raised in the sun, that are in the sun, will not turn back. And that phrase there can only be fulfilled in the new covenant, which is the promise that they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. That's the explicit promise of the new covenant that was not found in the old covenant. That's why the new covenant is new. When this prayer is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, no longer will someone have to teach their neighbor, no God, for all in that covenant, no God, and they will never turn back. Why? Because God has answered his prayer for the vine, for his son. Because God has answered the prayer to shine his face upon his people in his new covenant. The language about Christ is so clear through this. And as you think about what Christ said, that if you abide in Christ, you will produce fruit. Look at the fruit here in verse 18. Not only will they not turn back, they're given life, but they call upon the name of the Lord. That is the fruit that they are producing. So what is that fruit? Well, it's the same thing as Jesus is referring to in John chapter 15 when he says produce fruit. Sometimes we think as Christians that producing fruit means that people are coming to be converts under our sharing the gospel, and certainly that is the fruit. But that's not the fruit that it's referring to. It's referring to that fruit of loving one another as, we're, as Jesus himself modeled. That is the fruit of the Spirit that we are to be having. And that will be produced in those that are abiding in Christ, that are in Christ. And they will not turn back because the Lord has shined his face upon them. As you look through the whole biblical history, God chose Adam for himself to represent mankind, to be the head for mankind, to represent and and to take dominion over the land. Adam failed to do that. He had planted him in a garden and gave him all the choice fruit and said, you can eat all of this. He chose Jacob. And for Jacob to be a people to be named Israel after him. 
And through Moses, he led them into the land to be their first, his firstborn son that was to represent his glory throughout all of the earth and says, here, you have all of this. It's all yours. But just like Adam felt, who was under a covenant of works, Israel felt that was under a covenant of works. So he chooses David to represent his people. And David represented his people fairly well. But David could not meet the conditions of the covenant. That's why Israel felled. That's why the vine felled. Christ fulfills the prophecy of this psalm as the vine, as the son of man, the son of David. Christ is the one that stands for his people. And we have to ask this question, did Christ leave anything undone? All that Adam felled in, Adam failed to take dominion, Adam failed to be obedient, Christ succeeds in all of it. Any of those things that we try to take into our own hands is a flat denial of the sufficiency of what Christ himself brings. But what we see is in this promise, in him his people will not be destroyed by fire or any other attack, but rather will bear the fruit of the Spirit. So here's the decision before us, as always, is we can try ourselves with our own means to represent ourselves before God. We can try to be good enough for God. We can look at God's law and say, this is good, I'm going to follow it, and I can gain acceptance with God through this. But our own heart testifies that we can't do that. And so we have to look towards the king that will actually fulfill that law for us. We have to look forward to that king that will be obedient to the law, that will hold every single conditional statement in Scripture perfectly on our behalf, and we have to trust in that king. We have to trust in that shepherd. We have to trust in that son of David. And if we don't, we're trusting in ourselves. And then we will be like the vine that had the most fertile soil, but is ripped out and will be thrown to the fire. So let us look to our shepherd. Let us look to our king. Let us look to our Lord and Savior, the true vine. And in him, the face of the Father shines upon us so that we will be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the true vine. We thank you for the promises for those that abide in him. They will produce fruit. How we're reminded that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Father, by your grace, may we cling to Christ. And may we rest assured that he clings to us. Father, when we begin to doubt things, when we begin to get discouraged, may we turn our eyes to Christ upon the cross. May we see what he has done for us as the true vine. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you take your hymns of grace and turn to hymn 20...